Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Okay, Jen, let's open up the file on Julie and the jarring note. And guess what, everyone? That Julie would be me. Yes, it was you, Julie. Uh, This one is actually about your own son's case. Uh, So let's go over the facts, Julie. Right. So let me set the stage here. Um, Autism um, in 1996, when my son was uh, almost three, was not um, at the level that it is today. In fact, when my son was first diagnosed with autism, I didn't know another soul with autism. It might as well have been one in a million. Um, We all know that changed. But at that time, um, people weren't talking about autism like they are today. People weren't talking about um, applied behavior analysis, which is a methodology um, often used to help children with autism learn. And it was a totally different landscape. So back in that time, um, autism was just beginning to rise and it was right when my son was going to go into the public school at the age of three because he qualified for special education. And Julie, just to interrupt you, when you when you say people weren't really talking about it, didn't know much about it, that that those people included educators. They weren't dealing with, you know, the volumes of students who have an autism spectrum disorder that they are now, unfortunately, because the numbers have gone up so much, rather accustomed to working with. It was it was kind of an unknown quantity to most public schools at that time. As a matter of fact, yes. And I think I have a rather unique position in that I have seen how schools have responded to autism over the last 20 plus years. In the beginning, in fairness to them, they weren't tooled up to deal with um, the, you know, this huge, all of a sudden rise from nowhere of this um, disorder that with lots of kids coming into the school districts who we needed to have special programming for them. So they simply weren't tooled up at that time. Like I said, I mean, as it was, Jen, I had to look autism up in a set of 1950s encyclopedias. Um, And, you know, what it said about autism was not um, terribly encouraging to me. As a matter of fact, I remember going home and probably cried for a good week and used to have to lock myself into my bedroom because my older son would um, try to find me in the house. And I was like inconsolable crying over this news. And it was just a, it was a very dark time and, and, sure. and it was hard. It was really hard, but it, I didn't, I had never even, I mean, I had heard of autism, but I really didn't know what it was. Um, and so speaking of that 1950s set of encyclopedias, that's a bit of a, of a teaser there. Cause I'm going to go back to that in a minute. So 
At that time, I had started a ABA program, which I was running out of my basement before Alex turned three. And um, he had, was making really tremendous progress under using this methodology, applied behavior analysis. And so when it was time for him to go to the public school, I, in an IEP, an individualized education program meeting, asked the school district to provide him with an ABA program. Um, unfortunately, that was denied out of the gate. Um, they didn't want to know ABA. They didn't want to know anything about it, even though I had brought all this evidence that he had made so much progress with it. And so, you know, while it was first denied, I said, okay, let me keep him in the public school and see how their program goes. I said, well, and Julie, we should we should point out that you know ABA is a very popular methodology. It is not the only methodology that exists, um, but you had already been seeing progress with Alex at home using that approach, right? And it absolutely is not the only approach, and it's not for everyone. But it it was uh, proved to be very successful for him. So I gave it some time with him using their program in the public school, and it was very clear that Alex was not making appropriate progress. And I decided to pull him out of school, withdraw him from the public school system, and unilaterally place him into a private special education school here in Connecticut. And there was um, a a woman who had started um, the first ABA school here in Connecticut. So I was very fortunate to be able to um, find that school. And, and and unilaterally place my son in it. What does it mean to unilaterally place someone? Well, it means that you um, withdraw your child from the school, which by the way, you have to ten- send a 10-day notice, a 10-day letter of notice, basically giving the school notice that you're removing your child from the public school. But when you write that 10-day letter of notice, it keeps your foot in the door so the door doesn't close on your rights to the under the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And so Julie, we should also just note that you the other way you can provide notice under the law is to have asked for the placement in an IEP meeting before you remove your child from the public schools. So you have to do one or the other. You either have to have asked for it at, at the IEP meeting prior to removal from the public schools or give the 10-day notice letter. Good point. So I my husband and I, we paid privately to have our son go to this school. Now, once I um, removed him from school and I wanted to challenge the school district um, in saying that I didn't believe their program was appropriate for my son. So we had to initiate a due process hearing. And this is how I met Jennifer Laviano, because I retained her brilliant father, William, known as Bill Laviano, um, Mm -hmm. who sadly is no longer with us, um, who passed away. Yes, we certainly do. Um, But he was a brilliant attorney and um, just a wonderful guy. And he represented us in our due process hearing case. Yes. And Julie, um, that's how, you know, this is also the story of how you and I met because I was a fresh out of the box, as we say, lawyer, um, literally graduated from law school that year. And um, Julie and I got to meet when a scheduling conflict arose and 
my father uh, assigned me to cover a hearing date. The details of that story are very fun, and you can read them in our book um, because it was a. Let's just say Julie and her husband were not so excited about having a, a completely inexperienced attorney jumping in on the case at that particular point. But thankfully, it worked out very well because we hit it off tremendously. And um, all those years later, we we continue to be colleagues and friends. Um, but you know, Julie, what I recall from when I first got involved and when I was being told about the history here was that not only was Alex not making progress before you had pulled him from the public school, but the team, um, the school-based members of the team in the building where he was going to school were pretty hostile towards you and and not um, not very welcoming. No, and I and I'm gonna get into that in one second. I just I I absolutely correct. But Jen, I think the important thing to say at this juncture is in initiating that due process hearing, um, we filed for a FERPA request, which is a Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, which is sort of the, um, well, Jen, you explain what that is. And we'll talk a bit yeah. about it in greater detail when we get to the law, but I, I explain it in layman's terms to parents that FERPA is like the educational version of HIPAA. It's the federal law, you know, and everyone's pretty familiar with HIPAA. If you take your child to the doctor, you have to sign a form. Anytime you go to a doctor, they hand you the HIPAA forms. FERPA is sort of the educational version of that. Um, it's a federal law that says that uh, you're not um, allowed to just uh, hand out students' educational records to whomever is in interested in them. The parents actually have to ask permission and give permission for third parties to obtain them. So when an attorney is looking to represent a child in a due process hearing, one of the first things they'll do is to ask the school district for all of the records under FERPA to which a parent is entitled um, to have a copy of those records, but you need to get the parent's permission in order to obtain them. Right. So upon getting those records, and now we're going to get to the hostility that Jen was referring to, in the records, we found a note um, from a meeting that the team had um, on, on my son, which they're certainly allowed to do. And in the top right corner of one of these team meeting notes was a handwritten note that said, here we go, brace yourselves. What if this child is not autistic and the mother is seeking attention? Let that just sit with you for a minute, okay? So when I first read this, I, I I can't even begin to tell you the fire in my belly as a parent to think, oh my good Lord, this is what they think of me? It explained, as Jen was saying, why there was so much hostility toward me. And um, so what, what did that hostility look like? When I would um, bring my son into school and he was having real separation issues at that time. Um, he was three. He was three. They wouldn't yeah. let me, you know, past a foot of going into the front door. Um, I couldn't walk him even halfway down the hallway. I couldn't walk him all the way down. I was I was shut out. Um, and and really, I, I felt like I had been put on ice. Everybody had been almost under direction to not make things terribly easy for me. And, and that was very clear. And so when I read that note, right, and we discovered that, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is really making a lot of sense. Now, I will tell you to this day, it's probably the note that uh, sparked the fire in me to be a special education advocate. 
um, combined yep. with the experience of going through a due process hearing, which is, you know, talk about being thrown into the fire and needing to understand your rights under the IDEA and just what that process is. Um, let me tell you what that process is. It's emotionally expensive. It is financially expensive. It is expensive as far as it relates to the time that it takes up in your life. And it was just a really, really tough time. So not only at that time were we paying for a private school, but we were paying for an attorney at the same time. I mean, it was a bold move. I never even thought twice about making it because I knew I had to get my son an appropriate education. Um, we were very fortunate um, in that um, that case was eventually settled. But the point here is that I had a team of people who were actually doubting me as a human being and what my motives were. So, you know, let me just refer to something. It's almost like their theory on me was based in two camps of thought. One was um, there was a gentleman by the a psychologist by the name of Brutal Bettelheim, Bruno Bettelheim, and he was a very uh, famous psychologist back in the 1950s, an autism specialist who was pushing this theory called the refrigerator mom syndrome, and or the refrigerator mom theory, and his he thought that children were had autism because their mothers were cold and ignored them. So mm -hmm. that's that was the prevailing thought uh, um, up to the time my son was um, um, diagnosed because it was, like I said, it wasn't like it is now and we know more. The other Which thing, goes back to those uh, 1950s encyclopedias you referred to, because yes. this was right at the beginning of, you know, most people at yeah. the, in, in this time period didn't right. have email or, right. you know, computers in their homes. So you were right. really doing the, the hard work. Oh, yeah. And that, that was the viewpoint that was still right. remained out there. And thank you. You brought it back to those 1950, the 19, the set of 1950s encyclopedias for me. Thank you. Yes. And that among what I read in that uh, in those encyclopedias was, you know, about the Bettelheim's theory and the refrigerator mom syndrome. Um, and then it was another cross between what used to be called Munchausen by proxy syndrome, which by the way, in the new DSM five diagnostic statistical manual is now referred to as fictitious disorder imposed by another. And that is whereby FDIA, I just learned that today. Yes. Uh, yes. We both yes. just learned that today. Yeah. And, and so that's the theory whereby you purposefully make your child sick so that you can seek some attention. So, uh, you know, Whichever theory you'd like to pick that they thought of me, um, it resulted in a great deal of hostility toward me. Well, I mean, and Julie, we're going to get to the law in a second, but I can think of few things more upsetting as a parent. I mean, when I when I met you at this time, I, I didn't even have children of my own yet. You know, I was, as I said, I was right out of law school and hadn't gotten to that point in my life yet. But as a parent, you're constantly second guessing yourself. If you're if you're a good parent, you're you're really, no matter what, you're wondering whether you're doing the right thing for your child. You add to it then a child who has a disability and a significant one, and you're even more so wondering what what did I do wrong? It's it's a, it's a very common thing for mothers in particular, um, to look at whether this is parenting or something that they did when they were pregnant. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which that's just a, a, a reaction that is 
um, a natural one to have, even though th- thankfully most people today do understand that autism has is absolutely not something that that happens because of how a parent parents. Um, we know that now, right? And it's well known now. But I can't imagine how when you read that, when you already were struggling mightily to accept the diagnosis and understand what it meant for his future and learn about your rights and learn about how to educate him and to give him skills, to then have a kick in the stomach like that, that people were questioning whether or not you were just looking for attention as if you know any parent wants to have some uh, significant disability uh, diagnosis for their child, it, you know, it's it's absurd, but it unfortunately was was your experience, and I'm sure part of why you you sensed that hostility, right? And you know, in those days, Jen, even though today in my practice, I will still come across teams that doubt that a child has autism, right? Oh yeah, they're oh that's just my phone. I forgot to turn that off, so let's do that. Sorry. Um, even though teams may sometimes doubt that a child has autism they're not going to uh, go to the extreme of what they perhaps think about a parent um, because these are theories that have been debunked, right? Um, right. The Bettelheim um, refrigerator mom syndrome. Um, Thankfully. But yeah, but back then, Jen, because literally autism might as, might might as well have been one in a trillion, there was no one else you know, it hadn't risen to the level where there were other people in their experience who were bringing kids who had autism into the district. So, you know, they thought, well, this is an outlier. This mother must be nuts. Well, and meanwhile, you know, thankfully you found that other mom who is starting the school, but, you know, isolating experience to say the least when you, when you don't have a community, like we do, you know, with the, with the advent of the internet and with resources that are so readily available, parents do have um, an opportunity to get information, swap oh. information, and and that's invaluable. But you know, you were sort of out there on your own for a long time, and you know, I, we we should note the parent blame game, which is what I, I call it, where the parent or and or their conduct um, is questioned by the school team. That that has not ended, unfortunately. There yeah. are still many cases where there is, um, and we're going to talk about repairing relationships and rebuilding trust later. Um, but you know, there is still I still encounter situations where uh, a student's disability is somehow blamed on the parent. In fact, you know, I've had, mm-hmm. there's a you know, couple of board attorneys who will, you know, talk to you mm-hmm. before you go into the IEP meeting, the Individualized Education Program meeting, and they'll, you know, try to say, you know, like, chummy lawyer to lawyer, something that implies that it's the parent's fault, you know, and, and, um, you know, I, like, I, I remember I had one case with a student who at that time, the diagnosis was Asperger's disorder. And, um, as we were heading into the IEP meeting, uh, this attorney asked to speak to me about, you know, what the parents are going to be requesting as a professional courtesy, sort of going into the meeting to have an understanding of what the party's positions were. And, um, she said to me, you know, this, this family has had something like 16 different nannies in the last few years. And I just looked at her and I said, wow, that's probably why he has Asperger's. And she it shut her right up. It was just a ridiculous thing to say. What does it have to do with anything? You know, right. okay, I can understand a point right. being made about home consistency and all of that. That we can talk about. But that kind of disparaging mm-hmm. attitude is is really one that you and I unfortunately do see. And again, we're jaded. Mm-hmm. We're brought in when there are problems that are significant enough for a parent to feel that they need to hire either an advocate or an attorney. So we're we're very aware that that's not the norm, but it does still happen. And it's something we're going to later on in this episode, help you try to fix. 
Okay. So Julie, yeah. time to talk about the law. Absolutely. So, you know, Jen, um, we I think what we should kick it off with is explaining the fact that we've got FERPA, the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. So why don't you take it away on that? Yes. Yeah, so um, that is, as I had said earlier, sort of like the, the educational version of HIPAA. Why it's important is that parents should know that under both FERPA and under the IDA, they have a right to inspect and have copies of their child's educational records. And why is that important? Well, you know, there are many, many, many records in a child's file. And I'm going to put that word file in um, quotes because there's often many folders and files. There's a central office file in some districts and a special ed file in another building. And, you know, so we have to be clear that we're asking for all of the educational records that exist in the district. Um, there are many, many records that parents have never seen before. You would be probably surprised. It's rare that I have a client who, when I send them the copy we've received of their educational, their child's educational records, isn't surprised by something. Mm -hmm. It's not usually as egregious as the note that Julie, that you found in your son's educational records. But we have found um, many disturbing communications between team members where um, everything from, you know, uh, a note in first grade of suspected disability for a child that was never evaluated or referred. And the parent, you know, has hired me when the student's in eighth or ninth grade because they've watched their child struggle for years and only now have gotten the diagnosis. And then they find out that this has been suspected for many, many years. I mean, we find all sorts of things in those records. And, um, you know, it's very helpful information. Now, you have a right to it and you have a right to ask for it. Um, that said, you should be judicious about when and whether you do so because it's kind of a red flag to a school district that a parent is upset with their child's program if they're suddenly asking for a copy of all their mm, child's records. Yeah. And, you know, the second one here, Jen, um, and the final one I think that we're going to talk about as far as the laws that relates to this is a denial of faith. And that's the denial of a free, appropriate public education. And so I was making the claim that my son's well, while it was free to me at the time, while I was going to the public school, I didn't believe that it was appropriate. And appropriate is one of those words um, that we all get to um, have a good discussion about who, who, who's, who's, who's right. <laughs> it do, right. Is my opinion of appropriate right or is your opinion of appropriate right? It's one of those words that we get to argue over. Right. And courts have analyzed this, and we have the most recent decision from the Supreme Court on this was in 2017. Um, and so, you know, that is part of what due process hearings are about under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is where a parent and a school district cannot come to an agreement about what a child needs, and they can't even resolve it through um, a mediation or other dispute resolution, and they have to go to the point where they're actually litigating uh, the question of whether or not the school district did offer a free and appropriate public education. So in your case, Julie, you did not believe that the program that the school district had provided and had offered was appropriate to meet Alex's needs. And you initiated your due process rights to have a, a third party fact finder um, decide whether or not, like a judge, decide whether or not the school district complied with their legal obligations. And as you know, you alluded to, you were able to resolve it and have a good relationship with your district for many years after that. But um, the filing and litigating of due process hearings is rare. Um, given the number of students who are identified nationally every year, it is 
extremely rare for a parent to go to the point of bringing and then litigating a due process hearing. But um, they are they are part of the parent's right, uh, the parent's right to challenge the decision making of their child's IEPT. And since you alluded to the um, uh, the the case at, at Supreme Court, uh, let's just tell everybody about that case. It's called Andrew F. And that's not Andrew with an A. It's Andrew E N D R E W F. And that's worth Googling because that's actually a case about a student who has uh, an autism spectrum disorder and um, certainly worthwhile for people to understand um, the ramifications of uh, the, the, the findings by the um, or the ruling by the Supreme Court. Yes, and it's it's well worth the read. It's actually, I think, a very beautifully written decision. And I, I want to note that in your case, Julie, and in that case, and in many cases involving legal disputes over what constitutes an appropriate program, um, often school districts and parents can get into what's called a methodology dispute under the law, okay? What does that mean? That means that in general, um, many courts have said, and school districts repeatedly point to the, the, their right as educators to be the decision makers about what's an, what, what method they're going to use to teach a child, okay? So they will say, and they often do in IEP meetings, it's not up to you, Julie, to decide mm-hmm. if we use ABA or some other approach. That's up to us. We're the educators. We should be given deference on that decision. The courts have um, don't just um, accept that at face value. They're going to look into whether or not that methodology is appropriate to meet the unique needs of that child. Um, and so, you know, this does not this is not specific to autism. Many parents get into methodology disputes for learning disabilities, um, where they want a particular approach to be used with certified staff who use that methodology and the school district's special ed teacher is not certified in that methodology. You know, for me, what I always say when I can feel myself getting sucked into a methodology dispute is to back up, take a deep breath and focus on the actually on the word appropriate, because it doesn't really matter whether a specific methodology is in general reliable. What matters is whether it is in fact appropriate to meet that child's mm-hmm. needs and whether it's resulting in, in meaningful progress. So Julie, a couple of other aspects of the law that are implicated by what occurred in your case that I think we should just highlight, okay? One is um, that if in fact your school district had believed that autism was not the right disability, that in fact he did not have autism, they have a number of obligations in in that kind of a scenario. Let's just assume it wasn't any malfeasance or a negative view of you as a human, they genuinely thought this kid doesn't have autism. Mm -hmm. Well, they have obligations if that's what they genuinely believe. They have an obligation to do a comprehensive evaluation in all suspected areas of disability. So they should have brought in um, somebody to determine whether or not autism was in fact the disability. They also, if they felt that you were in some way looking for attention, um, as opposed to this actually being a disability that um, required a specific kind of intervention, they, they should have considered parent counseling and training. So the, um, the IDEA has um, the uh, related service of providing parents with um, training and counseling to understand their child's disability. So they shouldn't have just left it at that, okay? 
Um, and so I, I just want to make sure that everyone's aware that, you know, simply questioning a whether or not a disability is accurate is really not what the law requires school districts to do when they are setting about to understand and program for a child with a disability. Right. Okay, let's go straight to the verdict. So, Julie, what's the verdict on this one? Well, the verdict is, you know, at the end of the day, as a parent, trust your instincts. You know, my instincts at that time were, why are these people shutting me out? Why are these people um, so hostile toward me? Well, I ended up figuring why they were so hostile toward me, right? Because they thought I was... (laughs) Uh, making it up, making it up. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the verdict is that you, I, I really think that if, if, if your team, you feel your team is distrustful of you. Um, if you, you, you're feeling something that doesn't feel right, that you need to press a reset button. Um, perhaps, you know, go to your director of special education and say, look, you know, we, we got to talk about this. Great point, Julie. So uh, it's time, Julie, for the rewind, uh, which is where we try to look back and help um, parents and educators uh, avoid the mistakes that we've seen uh, on the ground. And so in this one, uh, we've talked about a few of the things that could have been done differently here, evaluations. uh, You just talked about meeting with the administration. Um, But here's here's a couple of other things that I think should have really been... um, information that could have been helpful to the team. When a school district is faced with a diagnosis, which is an unusual one, um, a low incidence diagnosis, one that they haven't seen before or not in a long time, which it was clear was the case at the time for you and your school team. They, They had not been working with many children with autism as they do now. And so when a team gets a diagnosis that's unusual, one of the things that I've seen that has been a mistake for many teams is to uh, avoid the the rareness of the disability and um, just continue to do what you've always done for, for pretty common disabilities and refute um, the parents' involvement to try to give you more information. And, and I, I've seen this a lot where a student gets an, a, a diagnosis that's fairly unusual. In fact, they've you know had to go to sometimes out of state to a children's hospital to get the diagnosis because numerous professionals have evaluated their child and said, well, it's not quite this and it's not quite that. And, you know, sometimes it turns out to be some, you know, chromosomal disorder or, um, you know, a a very unusual um, kind of disability that can be tested through, you know, a a medical test. Um, And so for many students where that happens, where you have these unusual disabilities, the parents will start sending, you know, articles Mm -hmm. and they'll offer to have the team talk to various professionals about it and go to conferences that they've gone to on the subject. And many teams are incredibly receptive to this and they're anxious and and, um, wanting the information of knowing what's unusual about this child's presentation. But unfortunately, Julie, there are some teams who um, who just don't do the the work that comes into trying to find out about a disability that's not like any you've seen before. Right. I think, you know, to rewind, I think the other thing that a couple of other things we can talk about is 
um, what the school district could have done differently was to involve me in the process, which sort of goes back to the law, Jen, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, parents are supposed to be meaningful members of the IEP team and members of the team to be involved in even creating a child's program and IEP. Um, Certainly that was not done in my case. I was shut out completely from the process. Um, but that is, I think, a mistake that that they made at that time. And that certainly is something that they could have done a better job at. The other thing that I think they could have done is say, okay, listen, while we may not know much about autism, while we may not know much about ABA, applied behavior analysis, this, this mother came to the team with data that showed the progress that he made in the home program. Why don't we give that a whirl? Let's probe it out. It's not promise anything. Let's do like a diagnostic placement using this this methodology. Diagnostic meaning we're not committing to it, but we're going to try it out. We're going to take data. We'll come back to the team, to the IEP process, and we'll see, boy, did this work? Did it not work? Um, That would have been a, a really great thing to do as well. And, oh, no, and Julie, it gets to the core of what we've talked about in terms of rebuilding relationships. I, I've said this many, many times in many presentations, both to parent groups and to educators. Everyone in this system would do much better in communicating with one another if, if everyone sort of started from the following premise. In most cases, educators know a lot more about education and intervention than parents. And in most cases parents know a whole lot more about their individual child than the educators do. If everyone came at it from that perspective of giving each other the respect of the roles that are different roles that the parent and the educator play in the process, we would be, I think, in much fewer dispute. Uh, I, I really believe that because it's usually a breakdown of communication and trust that leads a parent to have to bring in a professional like Julie or me. And, you know, Jen, speaking of good relationships, uh, to end this up and, and put a, a a nice bow on the end of this, okay, is by the time that my son was outplaced to this private special education school, which is exclusively for applied behavior analysis and children with autism. Um, I was determined to turn my relationship around with the school district, right? Because just because your child is in an out of district placement, a private special education school does not mean that you've cut off your relationship with these people. They're Mm -hmm. still responsible for the education, right? So by the time, you know, a couple months went went by and there was a new, uh, some new folks in, in, the, in the school district and um, who were, you know, in charge of special education. And I said, you know what, I am not going to let this new person think that I'm uh, this crazy mother, like uh, everybody had made me out to be. Right. And I, oh, she's in the school district. Yeah. Like yeah, that. Yeah, and, you know, exactly. and that, and that I was seeking attention and, and all of mm-hmm. these things. And so I set out, to set up an appointment with her, told her I wanted to have a good relationship. I told her that, you know, I really wanted to press a reset button. And we did. Um, And we did have a good relationship. And so I think the other thing in the rewind here is that even when you've had some discourse with your school district, or you've engaged in a, in a due process or, or anything where you disagree with each other, it is possible to turn that around. 
something. It really is. Right. It really and Julie, well before it goes to a due process hearing, one of the things that we encourage parents to do in our book is many, many times the teams in the building that your child is attending school, they're not the decision makers for the district. They are the building level team. In many districts, the special education director, the head of special education, is not part of those meetings unless there's a problem, unless something bubbles over, especially in large districts, where there's just no way that a director could attend every IEP team meeting for every child who's identified. They would never have the time to do it. So they trust the building level administrators to do it. If you're running into interference with your team, it's a good idea to try to get in touch with and introduce yourself to the head of special education. Right. Uh, come in and meet with them, pick up the phone and call right. and, and get to know that person because most of these cases can be fixed well before they get to a lawyer if um, the, the people who are higher up understood that there might be some mistakes happening at the building level. And, you know, I also said to that person at the time, I said, listen, if you think the numbers of autism are going to, you know, do anything but you know, go up, you're, you're mistaken. Because at that time we were seeing the numbers start to rise. And I mm -hmm. said, you know, please don't do this to the next person who comes to the school district with a child who has autism seeking these services. And do you know that one of the things that the district did do at that time was, and believe me, Jen, the kids came like, it wasn't long. Yeah. Right. And guess what they did? They invested in creating programming using the principles of applied behavior analysis. They hired some board certified behavior analysis analysts who, um, you know, are folks who can um, be involved in such programs. There's the, an expertise in, in um, you know, um, teaching children with autism through this methodology. And so I, I'd like to think that at the end of the day, my bad experience turned out to also be a good experience mm -hmm. For many, for the for the folks who came after me, um, with their children who had autism coming into the district, so of that I have no doubt. That's my story, people, and um, it is truly one of the reasons why I became a special education advocate. It's the whole reason I met Jennifer Laviano, and here we are. And you know, Jen, we we did mention the book a couple of times, but because we didn't say the name, I'm just going to end with saying our book is your special education rights, what your school district isn't telling you. Take care, Julie. I think it's time to close the file. We're closing the file. Bye-bye, everybody. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed. <laughs>